So Yahanzeb, uh, Jay-Z, as, as, as I call him, um, is one of my favorite people in the world. And this conversation reminded me why. Um, we met as classmates at Harvard Business School, and we came from very different backgrounds, perspectives, but we were connected by a love for knowledge, philosophy, and just having meaningful conversations about life. Um, as a way of a quick background, so Jay-Z is from Pakistan, um, and he spent much of his life trying to give back to his home country. He's worked in the government sector, the financial sector, he's worked as an entrepreneur, he's done TED Talks, um, all, all sorts of different things. And right now he's, he's focused on his startup, um, which is an EdTech startup, which, which has a mission to teach millions of Pakistani children to speak English. And you'll hear more about that in the episode as to why he believes that's so important to teach them English, but it ties directly to his value of, of making a difference in the world that he can see. He deeply believes that, you know, given his blessings and, and the things he's uh, been able to do in life, he has, he has this uh, almost kind of spiritual responsibility to give back. So we spent much of the first half of the episode talking about that, his value, his vision for his company, that 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 belief, that that responsibility to give back. And, and I always love those types of discussions because hearing people articulate their passions and, and their visions and, and those types of things is, is always just so interesting and you learn so much from it. And also got to learn a bit about Pakistan as well and, and some of the challenges, some of the opportunities they face as a country. The second half of the conversation was a dream come true for me as someone who loves talking about big, messy, philosophical topics. Um, Jay-Z and I have had countless conversations like this over the years, usually over some hookah and some delicious food. Um, but we picked up kind of right where we left off. And, and much of this discussion centered around the idea of conviction. And by that, I mean, you know, the question of how can we ever have conviction about anything if we don't know anything for certain? And, you know, we went back and forth for a bit on this in a very productive kind of exploratory learning way of trying to make sense of that and understand, you know, what 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 are the limits of the human mind and rational thinking? What role does emotion and the heart and faith play in it? And ultimately coming to this question, which people have been asking for thousands of years, does life actually have any meaning at all? And, and but we looked at it from like a very pragmatic perspective, trying to understand do we just wish it had meaning and therefore we project it onto the world and onto ourselves and make a case for that it's true that there is meaning and all those types of things? Or if we really look at it super logically, it's pretty obvious there's not. So a deeply enjoyable conversation for me. I, I really hope you, you all enjoy it as much as I did. And a big thanks to Jay-Z for being on and spending some time with me. With that, let's get to the episode. All right, Jay-Z, I'm super excited to talk to you, my friend. It's been too long that we've spoken, um, so I'm glad to talk to you in general, but I'm particularly excited to talk to you about this topic because we've had many conversations like this, so I'm very excited. So let me start, as I always do, with the question, uh, what's the value that's most important to you? Yeah, bro, so thank you for having me on the podcast. It's, uh, you know, it's, always, uh, it's always a pleasure and, you know, to, to catch up and, and now to actually you know, get to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation uh, would actually be an honor. Um, and I think, uh, you know, so, you know, when, when we're at business school, I think the word make a difference is kind of, um, it's been turned into a cliche, like where everybody's like, you know, we want to make a difference. And, and I think we we sometimes tend to use the word so much, at least that's how I feel that we kind of lose the, lose the substance of, of what it means to actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I look at my quick journey uh, since business school, it's been it's been doing private equity, private equity, private equity, and then just transitioning into a tech. Uh, 
uh, as a tech entrepreneur slightly later in my career, right? So I've, I'm turning to, I mean, I've turned to tech entrepreneurship in my mid thirties, as opposed to, you know, a lot of people would do it a lot earlier. And I think the, there, there are two core uh, values when I, when I kind of, to your question, when I, uh, if I dig deep, one is, uh, one is the kind of um, importance that I place. And, and let me know if it doesn't come across as a value because I'm just trying to kind of phrase it well, but one is the importance that I place in terms of um, being able to do something whose direct impact I can see. Uh, and so, and the impact by what, by impact, I mean very clearly I and mean plainly is impact on people's lives. Uh, so if I can do something, and I think everything that we do and a lot of people do has some eventual impact. But my kind of reason has been getting into EdTech in Pakistan in an emerging market where I know uh, we have at least, you know, north of, uh, you know, 50 million kids that are deprived of quality education mm. uh, to be able to do something here where, you know, I could hopefully play a little part, mm. a very little part in, in, in seeing those, those lives change. So that's been, that's been one desire to see that. Now, when I say that, there are certain assumptions that I make, uh, you know, and those assumptions are that education is the only way to make a difference in their lives, mm. uh, you know, and that the version of intervention that I am doing, I believe is the right way of intervention. So there are certain assumptions, mm -hmm. I think that we all make, which I'm fine with because, you know, we all stand on some assumptions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, based on those assumptions, you kind of, you make your decisions. Mm -hmm. So that's the one core thing. And I think the second, the, the, the second point uh, has been, as you know, the kind of idea of, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, what, what excites me is that, that those values get reflected and the, 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 the desire to build an organization on my own where a lot of those external values get in, reflected internally, right? Mm -hmm. And so this idea that I can actually be part of the desire, that I can be part of a value, a, a very value-driven organization that, you know, it's not just... Uh, not just the fancy culture stuff, but, you know, just hardcore underlying value driven culture where, uh, you know, everybody in the team are all aligned on those, on those kind of, uh, on the mission on, on what you're trying to achieve. So I think, I, I think that's what I would say too. I know so, if I made that. No, I mean, perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. So let's, let's get into it. Let's maybe philosophically is the right word. So let's start where you started that, that, making an impact that you can see. And I think that that you can see is a really interesting part of it. So I'll touch on that in a bit, but let me ask the simple, but maybe important question. Why? Why do you think that matters so much to you? And I, and I often say this on the show, because so you said something about, you know, there's 50 million children, I think you said in Pakistan that that aren't getting the education they should. So somebody could look at that and say, well, there's your obvious answer. You're helping, you're trying to make some impact on this huge number of kids. But if you go deep into that, why? Because there's a lot of people who have the skill set or the abilities to do what you're doing. There's a lot of people that choose to maybe not make that impact. They don't focus on that. They focus on something that's maybe not as altruistic or more self-serving to them. And I'm not judging them, right? I'm, I'm really trying to get to the root of that question for somebody 
like you who, who has put so much of their life towards that, trying to make an impact, trying to help, as you said, be of service. What's, what's underneath that for you? Have you ever really dug deep and said, why do I care about that so much? Yeah, so I think I think here the the word that you use is 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 absolutely on spot. I think the 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 real answer to the underlying kind of foundation of of all values essentially goes, in my view, goes to a certain uh, a certain belief system, if you like, right? Which is which 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 could be derived from anywhere, right? It could be it could be a philosophical kind of you know conclusion or inference that we have reached at some point in our lives or it could be right so for me personally that has the the kind of underlying foundation of all of this has been uh if you like uh, uh, a spiritual kind of uh, you know an underlying value a foundation of spiritual values where uh you know call it a belief system where my belief is that you know as a as a person who has been uh who has been endowed and who has been given uh, a certain amount of quote-unquote blessings in life and who has been privileged to have benefited from those blessings. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a moral compulsion for me to, to, to be able to pay back, uh, to be able to play a role in which I can give back. So I would call it more of a spiritual belief system which uh, pushes me uh, to ideally target something where I can play a role where I'm adding value. Now that said, uh, I, I didn't. I mean, I I didn't do that explicitly for the first 15 years of my, or for for the first well 12 to 10 and 11 years of my career after business school. Uh, but 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 that has always been a desire that if I could that's something that I should move towards. And so when I got to a point in my career when I, when I thought I have a little bit more financial security, you know, I can probably take those risks that I wasn't willing to take, mm. you know, right after, right after the school. Mm. Uh, I thought this was a time that I should, I should give it a, you know, I should, I should, I should go after, mm. after what my underlying moral system has always been nagging me to do, right? Mm. Can I ask you about that on that point? Because I struggle with this too. And, and hopefully you'll understand the spirit of this question because it's it's trying to figure out how we can all get to where we want to get to. You, you just mentioned, right? The first 10, 12 years, you waited a bit till you were a little bit more financially secure, which makes perfect sense. And I don't judge that at all in very much the same way I've done that. How do you think about that though on that spiritual philosophical level? Because there is something in that which says if, if everybody does that at scale where we wait until we are secure enough to help others, maybe that's not the ideal way to do it, not the optimal way. And who's to judge, right? It may very well be. But just asking that very philosophical question, how did you how did you think through that? Was there a specific target that you set when I get to this point, then I can kind of shift and, and focus more on what I really think I should be doing? Um, and how did you get confidence that like you were gauging it, right? Because a lot of people might say that and then they spend their whole lives not really helping others because they're like, well, I have to wait until I get settled enough first, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, you know, honestly, Terry, I, I look at it more of a, I mean, I won't call, I won't say strategic. I look at, I would rather say more tactical way of thinking where my view was that, you know, I mean, my, my honest belief has been that entrepreneurship, and this is again, a kind of a philosophical loaded, loaded statement, but my view has been that, you know, and if, 
if there is a way to to de-risk entrepreneurship, that's probably the right way to go. And the reason I say that, because when you say like, what's the right point, right? Why not two years ago or why not two years later? I think what was in my mind predominantly was, you know, when will be the best time for me to go out so that I don't fail, right? Because it's this idea that, you know, because if I failed and that's not good, that's not good for me or the purpose that I'm trying to achieve, right? At a personal level or at the kind of mission level that I'm trying to achieve. So, you know, in, in that, in that um, you know, call it somewhat of a utilitarian way where I'm trying to maximize both my personal uh, and the kind of overall collective good is where I'm saying, you know, at which point am I enabled enough in my view, which is, which I completely realize is a completely subjective call, right? It's like, you know, but it's all we have. You have to, you have to you know, eventually you fall back to, there might not be any objective criterion for that, but like, you know, at what point am I ready? And so to me, the point, the particular point at which I started was the point in which not just financially, but I had the people with me, right? So I have a, I have a great team of, I have a great founding team with me of early, you know, co-founders, early people in the founding team who I had not run into before in my life, mm -hmm. right? So one of my co-founders actually my HBS, one of our HBS classmates, but there and then there are two other and you know other people in the team. Uh, and I, I often we often have these discussions that had I not met you, I wouldn't have done this, right? And so it's also a function of you know you have people that have come together uh, and with the right skill set, with the right chemistry, and all of that, you know, kind of the kind of right team mm -hmm. piece to it. And then having the financial kind of, uh, because we're still bootstrapping, we're, we're, we're still self-financing self to be able to get through to a place where, you know, we see that we have the, we've, we've brought in the right product market fit. We've brought in, you know, we're able to see feedback, the right amount of feedback and the right quality of feedback from customers. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Does it ever feel... I mean, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I think, like you said, it's almost strategic, kind of tactical, practical approach you're taking, which which I get. And I think sometimes when people think about like helping the world or saving people, they think it should just be like this emotional, like pure, you just, you just do it in all ways. And I think there's something deeply logical about being strategic and doing it that way. And, and, and almost as you said, like, you went to business school, you spent some time getting yourself to a place where you built the skills, the financial stability, you felt like you increased your odds of success, all those things. So that makes a lot of sense. Do you enjoy it? Like, is it ever a burden? Like that, that moral obligation you spoke about before, when you, when you switched off to say, okay, now I'm ready, I'm ready to go after this. I, I assume there's some passion around it, but how do you balance that, that, that responsibility you feel you have given the blessings versus what you actually just want to do. And if you were just, if there was nobody else on this planet, and that's probably a bad example, but if you could literally just do what made you happy, would it be this thing? Or would it be something else? And you just feel like, no, 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 but I have to do this thing because it's my responsibility spiritually or whatever it might be. It's like if there's nobody else on the planet, then I think <laughs> <laughs> then it will have to be something else. Would have, right, that's right. Maybe a bad example with that. But if, 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 if you truly felt like I don't have to do this, everybody's going to be okay. Maybe somebody else would take care of whatever the thing is that made you feel like you didn't have that obligation. Would it still be the thing you'd want to spend your time doing? 
Bro, now it's kind of hard to, as I'll be honest, I think it's hard to answer that because I'm so immersed in that, that it's hard for me to kind of divorce myself or kind of pull myself out of it. Mm. To, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think about which the question, I'm trying to see if I could kind of, you know, uh, what else could I be doing uh, point, but, you know, so look, I, I think part of, so, so, let me let me put it this way. I think part of what I think HBS added to uh, my kind of view of career and personal life, and you know, we've had lots of deep philosophical classes and you know discussions around not just careers but life and how will we measure our life, you know, in terms of Clayton Christensen's work. And uh, so I think that there is there is there is of course a larger interest that I've had in, in entrepreneurship specifically. And you know, having spent my career doing private equity, there was always a desire to be on the other side of the term sheet, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, and 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 kind of be hands-on. So there is that kind of, you know, uh, call it a career interest where I'm a hands-on person, I'm an operations person. I, I've, you know, I, I like getting you know, into the kind of deep micro details of, of execution. So that's what I like in terms of a career and in terms of work. But uh, in terms of, um, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, 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 in terms of your earlier point of whether it feels burdensome or whether it feels, you know, it, it is, you know, we all know, I think uh, when you're out trying to, you know, build anything from scratch it is a lonely journey after all right so there are the very typical kind of issues of you hit naysayers you tell you, you meet people who say you can't do it uh you get your own low highs and lows mm -hmm. um you 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 have self-doubt and so you know i mean I've, i i've i've gone through a lot of that over the last two years i still go through sometimes but over the last Initial years, naturally, given the teething problems that you get in the initial part of the organization, you run into all of that where it, it does feel, um, you feel maybe you're, you know, maybe the market is, maybe um, the market doesn't understand me or, you know, sometimes uh, despite how much, you know, how much you know you should value criticism, criticism doesn't always always sound good right? and you sometimes want at least somebody who doesn't criticize right mm -hmm. and so I think all of that happens and it does feel uh, it does feel heavy um, but 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 I've what I've done so very again very tactically one of the things I've tried to do is I've tried to carve out or kind of you know carve out certain time pockets for myself where uh, I, I kind of switch into another zone so you know whether I am whether I'm doing, you know, whether I'm out running and, you know, doing my running or, you know, on the treadmill or, or there's certain time pieces or I'm out with family. And so, you know, I've carved out certain pieces uh, where I recharge, uh, you know, and kind of switch away. But otherwise, man, no, otherwise it's, uh, it's, it's just something that, I mean, I, one of the, the funny thing that happens that I've noticed and I don't know, if, you know, I, I haven't spoken to enough other uh, entrepreneurs in Pakistan, at least. One of the things that happens at least in my, in our company is like every day, generally, 
we talk about some piece of our idea as if it were the first time we're discussing it. Mm-hmm. And there is a same amount of wide-eyed <laughs> excitement, <laughs> wide-eyed excitement to what to what lies ahead, right? And what we're moving towards. <laughs> you know, I was I was saying this to one of my co-founders, um, Wakas, the other day. I was I was saying to him, saying, you know, we had this exact same discussion three days ago. <laughs> we were still excited about it, right? and so. It's like people, you know, it's like people when they don't get tired of speaking about their children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of the same thing where, uh, and one of the things that I'm actually also, you know, just a kind of tangential point, yeah. also enjoying is that I actually have always loved creative writing. Okay. So, I mean, that's been a, that's just been a side thing that I've enjoyed um, apart from the private equity and the kind of business career. That's just something that I've enjoyed on my own. And I've never gotten the time to do that. Now that we're actually doing our own content, so we have our you know kind of network of authors and and and, and you know people who are doing their writing. But I also do some content myself, and and that's a piece that I really enjoy. It's actually therapeutic for me, mm-hmm. writing my own content, creating own content, and trying to kind of put in the values like ambition, grit, and all of that. And you know, and so that actually also uh, makes it exciting for me. This idea that you know if I can. And then uh, I, I actually record, uh, so 90% of all the recordings, I'm voiceovers, I'm doing on my own. Mm. So I do the voiceovers myself. It's just, there's a certain part that I enjoy. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm going to do the voiceovers myself. What, what, what's interesting about that, Jay-Z, is we, you know, we touched on before that idea of like, um, it's all subjective. And, and it is, right? You know, as you're thinking about this, but that point you make about that kind of, wide-eyed passion that you have in the conversations I, I know that's still subjective technically but to me that sensation that feeling is as close as in my opinion as close as we ever get to something objective that tells us like that's what we should be doing like that's we can't really explain that feeling we can't really say what it is we can't you know share it with others necessarily but we kind of know it when we feel it and to me that's as close as we get to some objective sign that's like yeah this is something I should be doing so I think that's interesting I'm curious, as you kind of like finish that thread of, of that excitement that you get, the passion for it, even the creative writing, as you said, what is it you hope for? Like, what is the impact that you're hoping to have? And I know obviously it's children and education, but kind of talk a little bit about that. When you get that excitement in those conversations, what is it that you're envisioning that really makes it feel like this is something special here? I mean, so Terry, my excitement is that, um, you know, I hope that our... Um, our startup, it's called Hoopoo, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, the word Hoopoo. Um, it's, my excitement is that, that Hoopoo could become a great equalizer mm-hmm. where every kid in Pakistan, I mean, that's just a very clear mission, every kid in Pakistan becomes fluent in English language, uh, is able to read as per international standards, right? And once that happens, I know it's going to be transformational because, you know, look at all the online resources that are now available. I mean, look at Coursera, look at edX you have so much online look at how education is being disrupted globally even higher ed right even higher education with all of that disruption happening you know you have 50 60 million children who are locked out of that because they they can't they don't even know the language right Mm -hmm. and so i get and so i'll give you a very tiny example of the very you know quantifiable economic impact it could potentially have right so there is you know someone like a a young man, 18, 19 year old, like 15, who was working in restaurants, 
he was working in Karachi. He manages, he was our student. He was learning English with us. He manages to get to Dubai. Uh, and because he had learned some English, he gets a job as a manager at a restaurant there. And he gives us, a, he sends us voice messages. Mm-hmm. And, he tell, and he was just thanking us. And he was saying, look, because I could speak English, I got a job for 1300 dirhams or 1400 dirhams, which was a lot in terms of his, from for a big yeah. jump for him, also given when you converted to Pakistani rupees. And he said, when I spoke in the English that you had taught me, my boss said, I'll give you an extra 200 for that English. Uh-huh. And, and so that's just one piece for people who have, who have dropped out of education system, who are not, you know, but in, in Pakistan, you have just kind of mentioned, mentioning it parenthetically, by the time children get to grade 10, 85% of children have dropped out of the education system. Wow. In all of Pakistan, that's true. In all of Pakistan. So across, across Pakistan, you have, and that's about like, it's like 86% for girls and 83% for boys. Like so it's kind of average up to about 85%. So 85% kids have actually dropped out of the formal education system by the time you get to, get to grade 10, right? Mm-hmm. And one factor that plays a big role in that is also English language. Mm-hmm. Because after grade 10, your language of instruction, your medium of instruction immediately switches to English, right? Mm-hmm. So engineering, you can't become an engineer in Pakistan without English. You can't become a doctor in Pakistan without English because all of the syllabi, all of the books, et cetera, all in English, right? And so, you know, what, what you're doing is, you know, what you're doing is you are, you're, you're, we're, we're putting out kids out of the education system who are literally handicapped because I look at English as a skill, man. It's just a skill mm-hmm. that they need. They, they need to be able to, read and comprehend and that's going to change the way they think right and that to me is also and the second point to that is not just from an education point of view you know even from a when i look at it and from the future of a country perspective and this kind of might sound a little uh you know too big of a kind of you know out there thinking but still nonetheless once you have these young people who are educated who can read books who can who have become literate who can access content because there isn't a lot of content available in the local language, right? So when they can start accessing all of this content, I think they're gonna become better voters now. I think they're gonna make better political decisions. I think they're gonna become more conscious citizens. It's just, you know, when you look at, side point, when you look at the kind of, uh, I think the, the, the power of good content and reading content that kids can access is that you can actually develop a certain national ethos eventually with that content because you can, I mean, I, I really believe you can, you can create the right role models. You can teach kids ambition. You can teach them. I, I gave a TED talk uh, about a year and a half ago. And, you know, one of the things that has, that has been, that has struck me is that, you know, young graduates would come to me who have spent, imagine like, you know, 22, 23 years of their life, right? They've, they've been studying, they've been through college, they've done their master's degree. They've, and they're like, I've done a master's in math. What do I do with my life now? Mm. Then a master's in physics. What are my career options in Pakistan now, right? And so you have children who have been through 22 years of education and nobody has sat down with them once to have a discussion on where they're headed and why, right? I mean, this question, this discussion that you're high and I am having with the foundational question of why, it's just because, oh, because my cousin is doing math and my parents said do math and then I just started doing math and everybody wants to become a doctor or an engineer 
And if you end up in humanities, God forbid, then you're kind of doomed <laughs> and then you have no career. And then, you know, everybody looks at you as if you're a, you know, a pariah from the society. Mm -hmm. anyway. And so, you know, that it, it's giving them that language is, and what I see last point bro, is on, on this is that when you give them English language, it's not just, it's not just a tool for getting education. It's so personal and emotional because it gives them confidence. It mm. makes them feel that they can express themselves, that they can articulate, that they can express themselves. Mm. And that I think is absolutely essential for our children across Pakistan who come from various socioeconomic strata. It's, it's, it's absolutely necessary that they get the confidence that they can achieve, right? Mm. I mean, there is no, one of the things I struggle with when I speak to students is, you know, American American dream is sort of a national ethos of the U.S., right? It's been it's been a, it's been part of the narrative of the American kind of development journey, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think of it very plainly as we don't have a version of that. Like, we don't have a version of where parents are very keen to send their kids to school. You have parents who are cutting out a meal to send their kids to school, right? But if those schools don't have the capacity to fulfill that promise of the fulfill the promise of education, then essentially what you have is, I mean, we call it the industry of broken promises. And in Pakistan, education has become an industry of broken promises. You have fancy infrastructure, you have schools that have, you know, that that can give you infrastructure. And that's really, you know, that's that's really the extent of the intervention that they make. Mm. But quality the you know the, the kind of what's going to happen post school are are we preparing them forget the 21st century skills are we preparing them to even be able to just communicate right what, so, what is easy what 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 you mentioned like that that kind of the the american dream the national dream what what is it in pakistan what would you say like because i hear what you're saying exactly about the importance of teaching kids to to be able to to think about articulate what they want to do, why they want to do it, so that they have that confidence and the conviction, because anything we try and do in life is going to be a challenge, exactly as you said, as you're starting your business. And I think in many ways, that's what you're explaining, is that for, for, for anybody to accomplish anything, they have to have the, like the cognitive ability to process why they're doing it, so that when it gets hard, they can kind of get through that and work their way through and build the skills and do all the things. But it's all because it's working towards some end. And as you said, in America, we could debate if the American dream is a good thing or a bad thing, but there's this vision of what we're building all these skills for. It sounds like maybe in some ways you're saying in Pakistan, it's there's a sense that we sh you should be building towards something, but it's not clear what that something is. Am I, is that fair in how I'm saying it? Like what, I guess, why, why do you think that is? And, and what, if you had to articulate what you're working towards as a country, what, what is it? It, it? What would you say it is? Terry, so you know, so so I think what's you know to put it plainly, I think what's missing is a national narrative. I think you know a, a national narrative for um, a narrative that's promising. Because what happens is, and 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 I don't I don't blame anybody for that. I don't I don't blame the government. I don't blame any you know kind of civil society stakeholder. I just think it's a it's been a, an unintentional consequence of uh, lots of things, right? And so what happens is, as an emerging market when you go through economic ups and downs and you go through your your set of challenges and you know uh, recessions and then growth and then inflation and then stagflation and then up and then down when you go through that uh, you know and, and and media starts to cover you in a certain way i think a certain 
uh, a certain degree of negative self-fulfilling prophecies start to set in where you're like, oh, you know, we're not going to, oh, we're not being able to make it. Oh, we have this issue and oh, we have that issue. And so the national narrative becomes, or the national ethos becomes an ethos of perpetually complaining about how things are wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't, you're, you're, not, you're not looking towards enough. There are tons and tons of success stories at an individual level, right? I mean, I see lots of success stories where people have, of success stories, and I mean very kind of practically of, of social mobility, where people have, because of education, risen from nothing and, you know, are in now decent places, you know, are, 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 you know are, have their families, are in decent places, have decent jobs, or are, are leading happy lives. So there are tons and tons of examples of that, but those examples and, and that, but, but, they, but they're kind of all disjointed. They haven't been kind of put together into a national narrative, which can create that. I mean, I'll give you an example, right? Last year, we saw a lot of uh, venture capital funding come into Pakistan, right? And it was an, to, to 2021 was in kind of a first uh, year when kind of Pakistan made its kind of, you know, entry onto the world of, you know, VC funding. And we got some big names, we got the Tiger, Tiger Globals and, you know, kind of big, kind of players funds coming into Pakistan. And that, you know, just the impact of that, immediately across universities in Pakistan, you had young people, you know, who were kind of, you know, busting with energy who started saying we wanted entrepreneurship. Right? And immediately there was, you know, the kind of, the, the uh, an entire narrative has started to get built around that. And there are lots of players who are doing great stuff, you know, local Pakistani VCs, incubators, you know, writers, authors, et cetera, people who are all playing their part in building that national entry, which is, which is amazing, right? They, they came up with something called the Park Launch, which was like a platform to help highlight these entrepreneurs and connect with them with the VCs. And so that's just a tiny example of how, uh, how a positive, you know, how a kind of injection of something positive into an overall narrative of, oh, things are looking bad. And, oh, you know, there were two years of COVID and especially coming out of COVID, man, two years of COVID. And then we kind of hit into a, go into a global recession, oil prices, and you're continuously kind of in a place where at an inflation of over 20%, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're kind of in a place where, and that's, you go through cycles, I understand that. But if there is a national narrative that pulls you out, like I can do it, I know we can we can we can build come back. I know we can come back stronger. I think it plays a big role, and that I see is missing right now. And I just you know that was a point that I mentioned as a kind of uh, as as a footnote that I think one of the things that can hopefully that I hope to achieve is that once our kids become literate, because to me literacy precedes education, man. I mean that's kind of you know it, it precedes me trying to come up with better ways to teach them physics or, or math or engineering. I mean, that's going to happen, but they got to be able to read and understand and comprehend first. Mm. Um, if, if, if we can ensure English literacy specifically, I mean, Urdu literacy, of course, it's, it's critical and that's going to happen. But along with that English literacy at international standards, you know, I think we can make a difference. And it's kind of, sorry, last point on that, but I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, think about Singapore math, right? I mean, you have a whole brand called Singapore math that has, I mean, Singapore A-level math is different from the rest of high school math, right? I mean, it's, it's like a national ethos thing, right? They've kind of, as a nation, put themselves around. You know that students coming out of that system are going to be very good at math. You know that, right? 
So I think an equivalent, something like that needs to eventually happen here where you start to uh, you know, give hope to children, but all of that has to start with literacy. Mm. They have to be able to read, speak, understand, comprehend, for instance, understand this podcast, right? Mm. Be able to listen in, mm. be able to read, make sense of it. There is enough out there, man. There are TED Talks, there is, you know, there's enough mm. out there. YouTube is full of motivational speakers. There's a lot of stuff out there. And, and there are, you have gazillion self-help books and there's a lot out there that's going to help you uh, move through, but not if you don't know how to read. Yeah, yeah. You know, it makes you, it's, it's, it's obvious, it's cliched, it's almost embarrassing to say, but it's, but it's true and it needs to be said. Like, it makes you appreciate the, call it what you will, the, the privilege, the blessing, the fortune. Somebody like me, so I, so I grew up in, in America, um, I lived in kind of a, a middle-class family in, in New York, right, right outside New York City, and just makes you think about all the things that you can take for granted in that, right? And, and also, like, it makes you appreciate in so many ways, maybe it's the appearance, the appearance of, like, a randomness to it. Like, I, I ended up in that spot in which where the th- a lot of the things you're talking about were just a given, learning to read, becoming part of like the overall global system, because I speak English and that's the language that is the global system. Um, just that that dream and that motivation towards it, the infrastructure in place, all these things. And then you kind of zoom out and you look across the world and somebody else by really just random chance is born in a different situation, as you're explaining, and doesn't have any of that. And and it's, it's just, it kind of gets trippy when you think about it of how and in many ways, this is my journey to do this podcast. And that's why I say the embarrassing point, because for so much of my life, I've kind of gone through that. And you have a general sense that that exists, but I've never been to Pakistan. I've never been in that situation. I've never obviously been in, in, as in-depth in it as you have been. And you just don't even recognize how these things impact so much. <laughs> and, and it's hard if your eyes are closed to it to actually appreciate it and understand it and, and think about even doing anything about it. But I think it just it makes me think of that so deeply, and and it ties to your point too, because I think, you know, I I I, I was literate, I did learn to read, but it was only through further education and really HBS in many ways. We've talked about this a bunch. The, that that there's a parallel there to what you're saying. For me at HBS and using the case method and the Socratic method, it forced me to think in a way, it forced me to listen to different perspectives in a way that fundamentally changed the way I thought and allowed me to open doors to thinking in different ways and eventually start to recognize some of my blind spots and things I didn't have. And I think the parallel back to what you're saying is, yeah, exactly that. Teaching people to read, teaching people literacy and to think and to absorb some of this knowledge, it opens those doors for them to just have better perspective on the world. And it's so true and it's so powerful and it's such a simple thing, um, but it's it's the world is so complicated and messy that it's just, it would seem like, yeah, if we could just get everybody to be able to have that, we'll be so much better off. But obviously that's a huge challenge, as you know, even in your country, but in general, but it just makes you think about some of these things that just we just take for granted so easily, you know? Absolutely, man. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, it makes us realize that. And also then as a result, thankful, man, for, you know, for thankful. And then, you know, to the point that we started earlier on with this idea of responsibility that, you know, whatever we can little, whatever little we can do in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of trying to fix the situation. And I mean, I, you know, just kind of quick point on this. One of the things I've started to appreciate in terms of, uh, you know, to your first point around values is that I at least used to think of 
you know, we've kind of thought of entrepreneurship and, you know, we talk about uh, solving a real problem and, you know, solving, uh, you know, addressing a real need. But at least I personally hadn't thought of entrepreneurship as a service before. Mm -hmm. But I think this idea that, you know, uh, you know, we, we all have, and, and it's, it's a very philosophical, uh, I mean, not that I'm a philosopher, but it's just a, it might sound philosophical, but, you know, I think we all have a role to play. Um, and, and at some point, uh, whether, you know, whether, you know, regardless of whatever the belief system is, right, whether, whether you think that role is, 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 is given to me by a higher authority or, or, or something else. Um, I think we all have a role to play and, 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 and settling into that role, I at least feel right now at the point that I'm in right now, and, I, and, and it might change, <laughs> I don't know, it might change, because I always remember a joke, like, you know, somebody uh, said to Bertrand Russell at something around, I think he had written something around the, uh, around the solar system, and then a few years later, he changed his opinion, and again, this guy was one of the biggest philosophers, right, of the yeah last century and so somebody said to him that you know you, you, you said this a few years ago and now you're saying this and he said yeah i'm not a, i'm you know i, I i'm not dead right <laughs> <laughs> i might change so so i might i might revisit what i'm saying right now but given what where i'm right now i just feel that uh, i'm in the role or i'm playing the role that i was meant to play uh and you know somehow it it might be it, I can, I see it might be an exposed rationalization where, you know, you've made a decision first and now you know all the reasons and, and now you're trying to come with the reasons for that decision. Uh, but to your point, man, I mean, that's the kind of deep question which, 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 which you alluded to, I think a couple of times, uh, which is that ultimately things do come back to a subjective view of, you know, of, to, to your subjective view on things. And so, so yeah. It, and and it, that's where it gets interesting to me because you, you mentioned in the very beginning that, uh, you know, the, the, the business you're creating, the focus on education, there's some assumptions in that, that, you know, this is the best way for you to make the impact you're trying to make and that education is that important. And to that subjectivity point, th this is the thing I probably struggle with most. Um, and, and I've, I've mentioned this before, I, I recently just read a book by Tolstoy, um, I don't know if you read it, Jay-Z, called uh, A Confession, where he talks about like the meaning of life, really interesting book, really interesting book, but, but at the heart of it is this idea of if we're constantly making assumptions, because we have to, because we don't have all the answers, if, if everything is at its core ultimately subjective, we can only see it through our lens, and, and that's quite literal, right? Because we can only process all the information we bring in, anything we read, any conversation we have through our own minds, which has its own biases and flaws and all that. So in effect, we never know anything for sure. How do we ever have conviction to do anything, right? And, and let's make it very real in your case. So you, you did make some assumptions and you said, okay, education is going to be the thing. Teaching English is going to be the thing. You're super smart, thoughtful, philosophical. We could spend the next 10 hours debating if you're actually helping the world, not helping it, maybe it's neutral, or maybe even hurting the world. We could, I'm sure we can make an argument for that if we really pushed ourselves by doing what you're doing. Maybe people would be better off not, maybe English is actually the problem. We can go any number of different directions. Um, so how do you ever actually have conviction? How do you ever say, yes, I'm gonna go with this assumption with confidence and, and drive it forward? 
And, and the way I often say it is, I think we as a human species have gotten very comfortable with this illusion because we have to that like, I don't want to think about all the subjectivity and uncertainty of it and the assumptions because I have to make decisions. So I'm just going to tell myself, I know this is the right thing for me to do. But on a very academic level, when you actually dissect it, there's not much to it. It's just a bunch of guesswork that we're hoping for the best. So in a very simple thing, JD, like how, how do you make those assumptions? How do you do it with any confidence when I know your mind allows you to appreciate we don't know anything for certain and we have no idea that this is the right decision or the wrong decision? Terry, so man, again, you know, so since we're in now in the pure philosophical realm, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I think one of the assumptions, again, assumptions, some, something to stand on. One, you, you see, one of the things is, and, and this is kind of my view on it, like, you know, uh, we have, like, we, we clearly have, and, and it, 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 I'm saying clearly have, again, with a certain amount of conviction, we clearly have two selves to us, right? There is a rational uh, kind of thinking self, and sure. then there is a, call it the heart, the emotional sure. piece, right? And I feel that all the decisions that we make happen somehow as a result of collusion between them. There's, you know, there's a conspiracy in which the brain and the heart, the mind and the heart are both involved in a certain way, right? Um, and 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 so so I, I I honestly think that you know our our minds and our thoughts take us only so far, and at some point our emotional our liking disliking our emotional piece comes out, and takes us kind of takes a decision, right? I mean think about it. I, I don't know if it's the right analogy, but think about it this way: like you know when 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 someone meets you know their significant other, right? Um, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a rational, I mean, it could be, but I don't think it's a rational decision. I mean, I feel that, you know, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was, I was, I was, uh, I was selecting, um, I had to pick between a few people uh, for one slot. And I sat down and actually came up with a matrix for, you know, pros, cons of each person and where and, you know, which person and, and while I was doing that, I realized that the person that I kind of already had decided in my heart, <laughs> I wanted to pick, I was giving them the score <laughs> that I thought will, will get them, will look, make them look good on the paper as well, right? So I think that it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes, I don't know, but it sometimes is, is a mix of the emotions start to come in, right? And my point is that the, you know, there is, and this is a view of what we're made of, but my view is that I think we have a soul and a heart and that soul and a heart, which is beyond us, uh, because I don't know, there's a part of me that refuses to be comfortable with the fact that there's, there's nothing more to me than what I see with my eyes, right? And so there is a soul and a heart and, you know, uh, you know a piece of me that, you know, that I believe lives on a piece of us that we, I believe, lives on. Uh, and so there's always a decision, part of the decision-making that happens through the heart, right? Things that were, and that's a separate debate around what influences our likings and dislikings, and, you know, and, you know, how do our personalities develop and what are those personalities a result of? And, you know, people are shy and confident and introvert and extrovert and all of that. Um, but so, so, so coming back to specifically your point, 
of you know how do we ever know for sure my view is that um maybe certainty is not you know maybe maybe part of the fun of this version of life that we live is the kind of haze that surrounds us right there's a kind of certain amount of uncertainty that there is in which we take decisions whose consequences we can only predict but we would only know for certainty once we have been once we have walked on that path and that in that process as long as we are making decisions um, so so for me kind of last point on this for me it's you know i would rather say it's not whether that decision was right or wrong because that might only be clear in hindsight i think what's what's interesting to me is you know whether those decision principles were in our mind the right decision principles right so did we do it for the right set of reasons in our view right so now in for instance in my case i don't know if i will be successful if i will be able to create the impact that i want on all and all of that right all of the kind of dream that i have but in terms of what I know now and the decision principles that I have, um, if 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 we are clear on that from a emotional perspective, maybe you know if our if our heart is comfortable with those, like because because this might sound funny, but I think I think your your heart is the ultimate judge of whether you're doing something whether you're happy with what you're doing or not. I think there is a piece of us that, uh, I mean, now that we're slightly older, I can certainly look back at my life and say, there is a, there is a piece within us that tells us that, you know, you know, you're not doing the right thing. I mean, we may still do it, mm -hmm. but there is something that kind of hurts us inside or pushes us or nags us to go in another direction. Mm -hmm. And if, if that's comfortable with the decisions that we're making, um, then I think given the human constraint, that's the, maybe that's the best we can do. See, I agree with, I think everything you're saying, and I think it's probably right. My, my issue is, or my, my, where I still grapple is that emotional part, that, that feeling that tells us, I think, I think what you're saying, but correct me is we can't, by, by definition, it's not the rational part, it's the emotional part. So it cannot be explained. It truly is just a feeling and some sensation. There's a leap of faith that comes with that of just very much in what you're saying. And the, the rational side of my brain, when it looks at that, it says that may be true and it may be right that that's the case, but because I can't explain it and I can't understand it, I can't actually see it, I, I don't actually know if it's real. I don't know if there's substance to it or anything meaningful, or, or maybe even said a different way, even if I assume that is true, and we never actually know for sure, and it's kind of just, it, it almost feels like um, that, that thinking about things, being thoughtful, putting in work to, to learn more, a lot of the things you're saying with education shouldn't matter then, because at its root, it's just this faith in that, you know, what, what, what our emotions tell us is right. And that, that seems wrong to me. It seems like there is benefit to, as you said, the process and thinking about it. But if at its root, it's just, there's something that we can never understand and we just have to kind of accept that and go with it. The way, the way Tolstoy said it, to bring it back to that book, the, the quote that I think about all the time is he said, if, if I don't know who I am or why I'm here, then life's impossible. It's impossible for me to take any action or do anything because I have no, I have no confidence in it. I can't explain it. I can't understand it. 
And I think you're right. It probably does come back to some degree of faith where we have to just accept that and go. But, but are we willing to acknowledge that in that we have very little control, we have very little understanding, and we're really, we're doing the best we can with such a limited amount of information that it's almost, I don't want to say it's meaningless, but it's almost meaningless, because it's not grounded in anything. There's nothing we can hold on to to say, okay, I, I know this decision is the right decision, or I know this is the way to be living. We're almost really just guessing. And that's a very uncomfortable thing. That's that illusion I mentioned before, where I think people don't want to accept the fact that we just spend you know, 80 or 90 years on this earth, ultimately guessing and hoping that our, our intuition and our feelings are leading us the right way. But that might be the reality of it. We're all just out here guessing, doing, doing the best we can. Um, and there's something deeply uncomfortable about that to me. But maybe, as you said, that's the beauty of life. And I should, we should just embrace it. Bro, I think so. Well, the only thing I'll add to that is that, you know, in uh, so a, a bit of a mathematical example, if you like, but yeah, you know, when, 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 when you do, uh, it's been a while that I did econometrics. It's been a real long time. But, you know, when we used to do econometric equations, you have this E at the end, the, the epsilon, like the, the Greek letter epsilon. So where essentially you're saying is that the bulk of the equation is being explained by the equation, but then there is an epsilon, which is like a random factor, mm -hmm. right? So I think the, the bulk of the decision-making can happen as a result of the processing, the thinking, the rational, the frameworks, the decision frameworks, and you know all of that. But then there is always going to be, all I'm saying is there's always going to be that epsilon, which might be the deciding factor in many cases, which might make the entire difference. That single spec, that single iota of no, do this, do that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. No matter how much I am convinced that this is the right person that I should employ, but there's something about this person that, you know, that, that's coming in, right? And whatever, right? And all the, all the kind of, so all I'm saying is, you know, yes, we should, I mean, we, we have to work on developing the rigor in terms of the thinking process. But then given what we are, there's always an epsilon in us that we don't fully control. Like there are emotions, for instance, bro, think of it this way. I mean, this is I, I'm just my view on it. There are certain emotional feelings that you cannot control with your mind, right? Like a parent would love their child. And it's kind of a, to me, it seems like a granted love, right? It's, it's just, it's given. You don't have to learn to love your child, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody can, I mean, I mean there, there, there are always outliers and exceptions, but generally bulk of humanity can't, you know, even animals can't, you know, rationally not love their child, can't kind of get away, do away with that feeling just by thinking it out or thinking it away, right? Can I, can I ask that, just the president? So I, I agree with that. But if we do look at it objectively, does that mean it doesn't actually mean it? Like, I agree. I, I have a son, as you know, right? It's eight, same as one of your children. I love him deeply. But if I can't explain why I love him, does that, and I'm not saying it does or doesn't, does that make it any less real? Because I think the way my mind works, it says it has a very tough time accepting something as having meaning or being real if I can't explain it. It's not that it's not possible. It's definitely possible, but it's that point that I would never actually know for sure. If, if, we can't, if we can't explain it, then how do we know there's actually meaning there? And it's not just some random you know, hormonal secretion or some external influence that kind of drove us to something that's not, like we've, we've placed meaning on things, 
because we're sophisticated enough intellectually and we experience emotions and we say, well, those emotions must mean something. But because we can't actually trace it back to say, oh, here's what it means, it becomes very difficult to, to actually accept it. So to that point of loving our children, are you okay with the fact that you may never know exactly why we love our children the way we do? Does that tarnish it at all for you? For, so, no, man, because, you know, uh, Terry, because my view, you know, I, I think it's a, it, it, it's, it's a very interesting point. And, and my view on that is, and again, you know, it's, it, it has to, it, it, it's, it's just a consequence of a result of, you know, the underlying kind of assumption or belief system. I think that when, you know, in our journeys as, as human beings, I think post Renaissance, and this kind of might sound a little historic. I'm, 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 I'm not. I'm. I mean. I'm. I'm not. I'm not a historian, but just kind of my view on this. I think post Renaissance, uh, there has been the way we have kind of, you know, thought of ourselves as human beings. I think there is an overemphasis on the need to deconstruct things, mm. right, mm. and and be able to spell them out, right? And to me, I, for instance, am, am, am comfortable with the fact that there is a certain beauty to not seeing certain things. I mean, you know, there's a desire to see everything with your own eyes, mm -hmm. but I, in a way, think that that kind of takes away, that kind of takes away the, that at times can take, take away the the sanctity of it i mean if, if you like that takes away kind of the aura that there is right and so there is a certain mystique that is associated with uh certain things that we can think about and we can write about and we can be philosophical about but ultimately we will never as you're saying we might never be able to fully deconstruct and explain because they are in a realm where because you know, because bro, like one of the assumptions that we're making in all of this, right? Uh, and, and not just us, I think that's an assumption, as I said, I think that started to happen post-Renaissance when kind of uh, the, 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 kind of, the kind of rational being took over as the, as the only model of what a human being really is, right? I, I mean, I, I think that, um, one of the assumptions that, in, that there is in all of this is that ultimately our mind has the ability to know all knowledge by itself, right? I mean, ultimately my mind and my five senses and my rational thinking capacity should be able to deconstruct, understand, analyze, and then synthesize every piece of information that there exists, right? Fair. So, so, so I, whereas my, again, my, my, my assumptions or my belief system is that I think there is a part of us that we can't explain. There is a part of us that is beyond us, which is call it the emotions, call it the soul, call it the heart, where, which, 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 and which constitutes a big part of us, which decides the kind of, uh, you know, which, which, and which plays a role to all of our discussion you know, so far, which, which plays a role in the decisions that we do, uh, plays a role in the kinds of lives that we lead, et cetera. Are, are you okay though, 
with so so I think you're right. I think I don't personally believe, which I think you're saying as well, that our minds, our senses can understand the universe. Let's just say it that way. I think you're right about that. I do think it's the only tool we have, though. So we, we do the best we can. Now, you're right. We hit a point where we say we can't understand it all. Our emotions, our soul play, plays a role in it. And we have to be okay with that. <clears throat> I think the question comes, how, how much do we really, we collective rhetorical, we believe that, right? Because let's bring it back to the example of love for children. I think many of us, rightfully so, would say, I can't explain that love. That's, that's one of those things that's beyond our, our comprehension. But we know it's there. And we know, you know, our kids mean something to us and we love them, much like an animal, right? It's an animalistic, just natural urge. But there are animals in, in, in the wild, many, that, that might eat their young or might do things to their young in a very cold way where we as humans would say, oh, that's, that's horrific to think about. Or, or even take it with humans. There are certain humans where if they just tap into their emotions or their intuition, for whatever reason, it leads them to, do to maybe hurt children in some way. There, there's pedophiles in the world. There's all these things. And it begs the question, like, it almost seems like you have to pick one or the other. You either have to say, we can't understand this. Therefore, anything somebody feels, right, back to their emotions, their soul, we have to be okay with because we can't deconstruct it and say objectively there's, there's, a, there's a code that's a right way to do it. Or you go the other way and say, we have to understand it. We have to break it down because we are going to pass judgment on these things. And that's what I wonder, right? Like, based on what we're saying, if we were being consistent, then it would be whatever our emotions told us we, we do those things because our, our rational mind can't deeply understand it all. And I, and I know what you, I know what, I think I know what you're going to say, which is it's both, right? You, you take the rational as far as you can, but is that a cop-out? And, and I say this obviously with all love, Jay-Z, I think there's a lot of truth to it, but we're testing it. Is that a cop-out to say, to try and make us feel better that our rational mind does have some function and purpose. But the reality is, um, out of randomness or whatever, we evolved to have this unbelievably sophisticated consciousness. And we therefore then do things with it. But we don't know. The way somebody explained it once is like, us trying to understand the universe is like a, a dog trying to understand the concept of the internet. Their minds could just never do it. So are we the same? Like we're trying to understand something that we have no idea. And we place these things that say like, well, we should love our kids or we should act this way or we should do this. But the reality is the rational mind is almost useless. It really is just our gut feel and we, and we do the best we can. And I know I'm like harping on this point of, of trying to make sense of this. And, and last thing I'll say, and then I know we're coming towards the end, Jay-Z, so I'll let you say some more about it. But do you think this gets to the whole duality of life that we see in every religion, all spirituality, philosophy? Because there is this kind of dilemma that we have the ability to be rational and to think but at the same time, we know it can't understand everything. And then we do have these emotions and they're never going to make sense to us in a way that fits, but we have to kind of tap into both aspects of them. I don't know. I'm throwing a lot out at you there, but what do you think about that? Look, it, it goes to what you're saying, Terry. I mean, in, in, in many ways, I think it, it goes to the heart of uh, our problem as a, or our core issue as a human being, right? I mean, if you and tell me if I'm, I'm kind of belaboring the point because you know it's it's a, I just want to I, I want to be I want to be concise but I think I, I might I might uh, kind of go into a jumble but you know yeah. tell me if I stop right I'm, I always go into jumble so we'll be good <laughs> so because well, look I, I think there are two um, you mentioned religion and you mentioned world religions right and 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 the, and the duality of life. 
uh, theme throughout many religions of the world. Uh, I mean, across religions in, in Hinduism, you have, you have kind of rebirths and then in, in Abrahamic traditions, and there is the afterlife and, and so on. Uh, I think if you, if, if, if you think about it at, I mean, that's at least how I view it, that, um, you know, I, I think there are two different perspectives on life. There is a perspective on, uh, there, is a, there is a religious perspective, quote unquote, and that religious perspective uh, gives us the comfort that our rational mind is not the ultimate mm -hmm. tool or source of knowledge. And that there is another tool which, you know, which, which at least, you know, I'm familiar with Judaism and Christianity and Islam and a little bit of Hinduism because I, I can love comparative religion. So that's been one of my other big interests. Um, all of these religions, when you kind of dig deep into their, their spiritualities and, and, and what they're essentially saying and their substance, they're laying out another tool for you, an alternative tool, uh, which is the tool which they call the heart. Right. And whether you look at Hinduism, you look at uh, Taoism, you look at Bud uh, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, there is the heart in, in different languages with different kind of references with different names, but there is essentially the heart, the soul, the spirit that comes in different names, but which is essentially, uh, which is essentially the tool that's used to understand knowledge where mind can't reach. Okay. Right. So for instance, there is, a, there is a famous Hindu yogi who used to say science is blind knowledge. And he said, it's, bl it's, it's knowledge, no doubt, but it's blind because it doesn't know its own limits, mm. right? Because it thinks it can get everywhere, but it can't, right? There's another tool for, for that. And which, which all of these religions, in my view, point towards uh, something called the heart or the spiritual heart. Uh, and then there's a lot of literature when you go back into, for instance, uh, Christian mysticism, you know, there's a lot of literature on the heart and the mind and how the heart enlightens the mind and mm -hmm. how there is just a rational mind and then there is a mind that has actually been informed by, mm -hmm. uh, by an enlightened, quote-unquote, enlightened heart, right? And so one perspective on life is the, quote-unquote, as you said, religious perspective where um, you are subjugating your rational mind to what you believe to be a higher form of knowledge, call it the revelation, right? So whether that's Bible, the Psalms, you know, the, 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 the Vedas, uh, the Gita, the Quran, mm -hmm. whether whatever form of revelation that you're believing in, you're saying that that's something that has been inspired or has been sent by the supreme intelligence, by the higher intelligence to me, to guide me, as to how to have a perspective on life. And so that uh, has been the dominant view of human beings up until the Renaissance, essentially, right? Or up until mm -hmm. whatever, a few hundred years ago, where across the world, one of the things that you always saw was, uh, you know, there were always across civilizations, there were always temples, there were always monasteries, there were places of worship and, you know, different across civilizations across, but there was some kind of, uh, there was a worshiping piece to the, to the human, if you like, right? 
more recently, in the last few hundred years, uh, you know, we collectively across the world, uh, that piece has kind of been put aside and, you know, human beings have now come up with an alternative view where I am essentially, as far as I'm concerned, the center of the universe, where every knowledge that exists out there can be, I can know it by my mind or heart. And everything that I can't know is not just unknown, but also unknowable, right? Because this, you know, this, because we've not just, because when we take this approach, we have to not just do away with all other knowledge. We also have to do away with all other tools. So we have to stop believing in the heart and we have to just say, look, my rational mind, my senses, this is the tool. This is anything that I can get is through this. If I can't get it, it's not just unknown. It's unknowable. It's out there. I don't know. Right. And so this is, this is essentially maybe what I'm stuck with. Mm. And so I, I think those two views uh, offer very different perspectives on, on human life because the latter view is what, and, 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 you, and you see the kind of development of Western philosophy that happens as a result of the latter view because you suddenly, because, you know, think about it this way, man. You know, up until that point, up until kind of, you know, the, Enlightenment and, and Renaissance, up until that point, uh, Christian values would inform morality in Europe, right? But once you do away with, uh, you know, once you do away with quote unquote revealed or revelation based set of values, uh, you suddenly get a birth of Western philosophy that is moral but secular, right? Moral but uh, irreligious or irreligious, if you like, right? And so, because suddenly it's a question of why should I do good, right? I mean, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, because it's it's a very it's it, it begs it, it's a very deep question in terms of if there's no concept of afterlife, can't anybody get away with anything, right? If there's no sense of accountability, can you ultimately ever impose self-discipline, right? And you know, then you have the Kants and the Hegels, and you know, have your birth of, and then you have existentialism, and you have Jean Paul Sartre and you know, Dostoevsky and you've, and then within it, existentialism, you get the theistic version mm -hmm. uh, and then the atheistic version with, with, with Sartre and, uh, and then with you, the theistic version with, with Kierkegaard, which is, you know, one of his famous articles uh, on, on why am I a Christian and great piece, I think it was his PhD thesis. And so, you know, all of a sudden then, the moment you take out, in my view, the moment you take out the religious view, there's a vacuum that's created and we start grappling with that vacuum of now, what do yeah. we do? Where do we get those values from? What are we standing on? Because faith ultimately, uh, you know, and I'm not saying faith is irrational. It's just that there is always a reason. There's always a rationality associated with it. It's just that it gives you an end point where you settle down, right? Because beyond a point, you're like, you know, this is, mm -hmm. you know, this is revealed knowledge, right? So if I'm thinking about Christ, I can only think about him to a certain point, or I'm thinking about Virgin Mary, or I'm thinking about, I can only think about them to a certain point, or if I'm thinking about the Prophet Muhammad, so I'm to think about this certain point, um, and then you kind of settle at that point, right? You don't go, kind of faith lets you settle down at a, find a camping site where you can camp, right? <laughs> where you can say, okay, let me build my, building off of that because now these are a set of values that I'm going to take for granted, mm -hmm. right? Quote, unquote, I'm going to take them for granted. 
once you take that out, then you're exactly right, man. I fully, I fully agree with that, that we're left in a vacuum where we're struggling with, uh, it's like, because you, we, I feel that we start to go around in circles because we define values, we come up with criteria for what those values should be, but then we're like, but ultimately what is all of that based on, right? I mean, that is somebody's opinion. Uh, and then you have to kind of agree with what's that ultimate criterion? Is it the utilitarian version of maximum good for the maximum number of people? Or is it, you know, the famous philosophical conundrums, man, of, you know, if there's a guy who's trying to run and he enters your house and, you know, people have been chasing him, would you lie, right? <laughs> is it okay to lie in that view? And then is there a hierarchy of values? Is it more important to, you know, I mean, you would rather save a life, right? Than, 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 and, and, and not tell the truth in that, in that case, right? Because it's more important to save life. But that question of why is it more important to save life and not lie, right? Ultimately, if you take religion of any form out of there, that burden falls on us, on our kind of, you know, little shoulders. Well, <laughs> it's, then, it's, it's ironic too, I mean, it's ironic, but maybe it makes perfect sense where Tolstoy ended in that book is faith. The only answer to the question yeah. of the meaning of life is faith, but at least the way I interpreted it, and we're always just interpreting it, and, and I respect this in some ways, he almost did it begrudgingly. Like he didn't want it to be faith. He wanted to be able to understand it, but he came to very much the conclusion you're coming to, which is the only way this whole thing works, the only way we can continue to live is if we have faith in something that there's some reason we're doing this, there's some deeper meaning behind it. Because if we don't, if we keep just looking from that rationalistic view in the vacuum, you there is you will drive yourself crazy. You will get to a point where he almost literally was gonna commit suicide because he didn't have faith for a portion. And he came to this end point where he said, well, without faith, this is all meaningless. There's no basis on me doing anything exactly as you're articulating. Um, and he came to this conclusion that said, I must accept that there is some faith in this. And it makes me wonder, maybe I'll say this as we close, Jay-Z, like, it almost makes me wonder if, if it was more of a curse than a gift, the, the intellectual sophistication we've evolved to in our consciousness, because it, we can't know for sure. I think the best we can assume is that there does have to be some faith, as Tolstoy concluded. And it would be so much easier if we didn't have this ability, as we went through with the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, to start to question some of these things. Because we don't know the answers, we won't come to the answers. We end up in the same place anyway, that we have to say, well, put the rational aside and just accept faith. I wonder if it's not more of a curse that we're more doomed to have to be able to think about this all stuff, all this stuff than anything else. Um, but then the other side of it is, you know, you and I are having this conversation and it makes me happy and I feel good. And I like that I have you in my life in this relationship. And I'll walk out of this with some sensation of goodness, which feels like, well, it can't be all gloom and doom. Then it can't be that we're doomed to this thinking mind. Like, and I think that's where you're going with much of this, Jay-Z, is, you know, think about as much as you can, but recognize the limits and then allow that other piece, whether it be spiritual or faith or emotion or whatever you want to call it, allow that to exist and accept the fact that it just is what it is. I'm happy talking to you right now. Don't allow the fact that I don't know why there's any meaning to me talking to you to cloud <laughs> that, right? Let those things exist. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah. First, it's been such a pleasure, man. Such uh, a pleasure. I love these conversations anytime we get to do them, uh, Jay-Z. And I think that the mission you're on, I can't say why for sure, but it's an important mission and I'm glad you're doing it. And I think there's some obvious things. Because if nothing else, if you allow 
children, people to be thinking about this stuff more. I say this all the time. I think you'd agree. Even if they don't come to the same conclusions as us, even if they don't come to some definitive answers, the fact that they're thinking about this stuff, I think makes the world better. If we're all just questioning and thinking and, you know, we all have to make our decisions based on what we can, but the more thoughtful we are about it, I think the better off we'll be. So I think the work you're doing is awesome. And I think these conversations, I just deeply enjoy them, my friend. I, I really, really do. So thank, thank you for you. making the time. No, no, likewise, man. Thank you. It's, it's, it's such a pleasure. And it's not it's not every day that one gets to have conversations, like at least not me, man. And so it's, 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 it's such a pleasure to uh, you know, to sit down and, and, and catch up and then catch up in a very deep way. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, you have an awesome night. All right. You too, bro. Yeah. Have, a, have a good